Hello and welcome to a special episode of Adrian Goldberg's talk show, this time talking to Barbara Fisher, whose name you might know if you've seen the hit Netflix documentary Tiger King and Jules. I'll explain Jules' role in this in a moment, but I won't spoil Tiger King if you haven't seen it, but it's essentially about the battle between the owners of private zoos in the United States who specialise in looking after big cats, tigers, cheetahs and so on, and their would-be nemesis, the animal rights campaign at Carol Baskin. Now, episode two featured Bagvan Doc Antle, a private zoo owner who was surrounded by a gaggle of beautiful women, many of whom he was having relationships with. Now, Barbara had been part of the group of women surrounding Doc before she left the zoo in 2007 after being involved for eight years. She joins me now from Iowa and Jules, who was also one of the women who surrounded Doc but who wasn't featured in the Tiger King documentary, joins me now from Fort Lauderdale in Florida. Welcome along, ladies. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Barbara, I'll start with you, not least because you're the person I suppose people will know from the from the documentary. When did your involvement with Doc Antle start? Oh, well, I uh, started in 1999 um, after high school. I was 19 years old. Um, I'd gotten really bad grades and I couldn't get into college. <laughs> so I was just looking for something interesting to do, really. So that's how I started. But it's quite a big leap, isn't it, going from, I guess, an ordinary home life with your with your mum and dad to working in a, a private zoo looking after big cats. What was the draw for you? Well, for me, I was a transcendental meditator and a vegetarian. And so it was less the big cats than it was, it, than it was the yoga and, and that sort of thing that drew me to this particular place. I knew I wanted to be an animal trainer. Well, I guessed I did. It was kind of an impulsive decision to seek seek out a place like this. But the, the reason I chose Bhagavan's place was because of the yoga, really. And it was a vegetarian lifestyle as well, wasn't it, as I understand mm-hmm. it? Yes. We were all required to be vegetarian, yeah. And I'm just wondering, what, if you don't mind me prying a little bit into your sort of family background. I mean, obviously, you didn't do fantastically well at school, but did you get on well with your parents? Did you have a, a, a stable and, and happy home life? Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah. Two two parents, uh, brothers. I got along well with my parents. Um, yeah. I was really just trying to find a place to go after high school. That wasn't college. Okay. Uh, and what, what about you, Jules? What's your life story up to that point? I always wanted to work with animals. I knew I was going to do something with animals. And um, I was born and raised in Rhode Island, but I spent a lot of time going to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, because my grandparents lived there. And I got my photo taken with tiger cubs with for like $20. And it was a little Polaroid. Film, yeah, the little Polaroid camera. I was in seventh grade. I was 12 years old. And I remember after that, I just looked at my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm going to work with tigers for the rest of my life. Like, that's what I'm going to do. So I pretty much followed them, Doc Antle and, and the Institute of Greatly Endangered and Rare Species. I followed them until at the end of high school. I did my senior project, whole thesis, year year long project on saving tigers. I did my volunteer work at the facility and I pretty much stalked them until they took me in. And they took me in in 2003. I volunteered for them at their Renaissance Fair in Massachusetts just to kind of, that was my initiation to see if they, you know, 
if I was allowed in the club, you know, it's like the super, super secret social club. And then they took me in 2003. I started in May of 2003 and I was there until uh, 2009. How much time then, Jules, did you and Barbara spend together, as it were? How much did your time overlap? We worked together for, I think, like four years. She had been there four years prior to me and then I stayed four years after her. Is that right, Bala? I mean, Barb? <laughs> yeah. So when I got there, she was actually the first person I met. I, I actually remember you going out onto the onto the front lawn where we tied out the cats. I remember you with the green cart and the nasty baboons. Oh, yeah. That's how I, I, that's how I remember meeting you, is you were carting these four baboons around. Right in the cart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I met. That's how I met Barb. And then when I got there and I I started, she was actually the first person to start training me and and working with me. And so, how old were you when you actually went there, Barb? You were nineteen. You say what year was that? I was nineteen in nineteen ninety nine. In the documentary, you said your father, your dad, dropped you off there. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, <laughs> It's, it was kind of like that's how kids got dropped off. They got dropped off by, like, by their parents, like we were going to camp. And I think my dad was a little suspicious, especially after the first meeting with Vaivan. Like we sat down in the in the um, office area uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, he had a woman sitting on his lap when he was talking to me and my dad. Um, <laughs> yeah, he actually, you know, I think my, my parents were breaking up at that moment and it, like they had told me the day... My dad and I left. They broke the news. You know, we were breaking up, by the way. So I think my dad wasn't in the best headspace, probably, to be really critical, maybe. Uh, I don't know. But he did say when he was leaving, don't fall in love with your boss. Like, oh, God. So, <laughs> yes. You've said, Jules, that you told your parents you were going to go there, having done the petting session when you were at the age of 12. Yeah. Did they express any reservations? Say, come on, you, you, you don't really know anything about this organization. I was always the kid who was never going to be the normal kid in, in school. So, I, you know, I didn't take my SATs. I didn't, I didn't plan on going to college because I knew I wanted to work with animals. And I knew I was going to work with exotic animals. It's like that, you know, the book, The Secret, like I just manifested that. And I always believed that's what I was going to do, whether it was working for a zoo or somewhere like Doc's Place. And my parents supported me and my goal, you know, they, that they knew that I was, I was going to be working with animals no matter what. And so they were just happy that I was, I chose somewhere that was, you know, it seemed safe, you know, and, and he had, my parents had met Doc and met the people there going and getting photos with the animals and seeing the facility. And, you know, in the beginning, they, they really were just happy that I, especially my dad, he was like, oh, you know, take my daughter, make sure she, you know, teach her lots of things. He didn't want to see me stuck in Rhode Island, just doing nothing or, you know, not going to college or, you know, getting, getting lost or getting on the wrong path. So he was just excited. I was following my passion and then kind of, you know, same, same situation with Barb. Like once you're there for a little while, then, then the questions start to come up of like, why can't you come and visit me? And why can't we come to the facility? And 
my, my parents mo- actually moved to Myrtle Beach. They had rental properties out there. And, you know, I would see them like every couple of months. And we weren't really allowed. We weren't allowed to go see our, our families. I was always impressed how your parents just kind of like, well, if she's not coming to us, we're coming to her. I mean, they, they yep. maintained a relationship yep. with you no matter what. That's, and and I was actually talking to my mom about this the other day. My mom goes, how come, how come Doc let us be close to you and let us see you and not everybody else? And it actually, I forgot about this, but my, my dad was actually allowed to go on facility um, because he was a physical therapist and uh, China, which was one of Doc's uh, women, she hurt her shoulder really bad. And my dad was her physical therapist. Like she, I, I don't remember if she had surgery or what happened, um, but he did physical therapy with her a couple of times a week. And because my dad took care of her, that kind of let Doc just say, oh, well, your parents are cool and, and they'll be the select few that are allowed to, you know, come visit you and stay on property. But that was very rare. Like people weren't allowed to have their families there. And what was your relationship like with your parents then, Barbara, when you were at the zoo? I mean, the first two years, I feel like I didn't call them very often just because I was so, so busy and I don't know. This was before when I got there, everybody, it was like on the cusp of everybody having a cell phone. I don't think I went home for the first two real years that I was there. And then, and then after, and then my grandmother died and I started, and that kind of initiated like a yearly going home for me. And, and the longer you stay there, the more acquiesce, you know, he'll, he'll acquiesce to a certain amount of visitation with your parents. You've got that infrastructure laid of being a good employee once he needs you around you know it felt like he started letting us go more often without too much of an argument you know the more loyal you are the more you conform and and the more loyal you are and the longer you're there the more you know quote unquote privileges you get whether it's vacations or getting to go home or nicer place to stay yeah nicer place to live food being paid for, things like that. What were conditions like on the site? Well, I mean... Depends on the year. Well, the, my first place was was a terrible trailer by the e-barn, the elephant barn. Same. Do you remember that? Yep. Yep, me too. I stayed there too when I first started with Heather. <laughs> I When I first started, I stayed with a girl that had like Asperger's or something and she had night terrors and it was this tiny trailer with like single beds, you know, it's like a travel trailer. Um, and we had to walk across the facility to use like a bathroom and a kitchen that was in a, another mobile home that was shared with like 20 other people, not 20, there wasn't 20 people that worked there, but you know, five or six other people. That trailer was like, I, I when I was there at least I had like one working outlet it had it had like holes covered by plywood in the floor. You know, it was really awful. And like I said, he said, you have a bathroom. You just have to put a bucket underneath the toilet and then empty that. I was like, well, okay, I'm not, I'm going to walk all the way across to use the bathroom because I'm not going to do that. And then like the second place was like in the training room. Jules, were you ever in the training room? I never, I never was uh, subjected to the training room. <laughs> I mean, I think that was that was slightly better. The cockroaches were far worse. That was the worst 
Oh, I know. They were so bad. I mean, they were just all night long. You'd be waking up, cockroaches crawling all over you. Just have to shake them off and try to keep your keep your bedding off the floor, you know. And um, but that was nicer because you you could just walk to the bathroom a few steps, you know. Right, and it was inside, like an actual building. Right, inside a building, a real building, and and, and but but it was it was just a converted horse stall. Yeah, you know that was what it was. In the training room, there was three horse stalls. Before, but one was the kitchen. Oh, yeah. One was the kitchen. There was one across from the kitchen and then two on the other side. And apprentices stayed in there. There was another communal trailer that had uh, three bedrooms and a living room. And that's where everyone kind of kept their food. And that was like the communal place and then there were a couple apprentices that would stay in there and then there was like the scary trailer that we started in if there wasn't room that's where another person would stay and when i got there there wasn't a nice trailer for for right. a while scary but it wasn't that trailer where we could keep our food we had to keep our food in the training room with the tiger food and we had to take showers next to the tub where we defrosted the meat and and we had to cook our food in the same prep area for, with all the animal food. And yeah, it was just, we actually kept our food in the bathroom because that was the only room for it. Uh, anyway, it was. Oh, uh, I do remember that. There was food in the bathroom. There's snacks. Right. There. Cockroaches. Yeah. It was disgusting. Anyway. It does sound truly grim then. You were preparing your own food in the same area as the animal food and you'd be fending off the cockroaches at night. Right. That was the that was the worst. I mean, I I feel like I dissociated. I'm I'm I don't like bugs, but I didn't want Bhagavan to know I didn't like bugs because if he found out you had a fear, he would torture you with it. I mean, so I just kind of kept you know compartmentalized my terrible fear of cockroaches. And now if like if I now it's like double. Now I cannot stand the sight of a cockroach. I can't. I it's like suppressed fear <laughs> coming out. So thank God there's not many in Iowa. So don't move to Florida. I won't. <laughs> in the documentary, Barbara, you talked about the working hours and the working conditions. If you just tell me a little bit about what it was like. Well, it was whenever you were awake, you were working. I mean. And we didn't have that many hours to sleep. Mm -mm. Especially if we had babies. If we had babies or, or if it was the summertime and we were doing cub photos. Mm -hmm. It was just, uh, you know, I mean, we would be done. What would you say, Jules? Like in the summertime, a normal day where we, we would go back and go to sleep, it might be one in the morning. Yeah, because we would, we would work at Barefoot Landing doing the photos mm -hmm. until... Uh, like 11. Um, like it was like nine or ten because the the stores and stuff closed around nine so it took us about an hour to break everything down do money clean clean kennels clean cages and then load up all of the animals that we brought to work because no animals stayed there right so load them in a truck by the time we got home and then we have to unload them out of the truck we have to unload the cubs if we have to go feed the cubs if we have to feed any other animals, you know, hopefully the person that stays home feeds animals. And then by the time we're 
getting into bed, it had to have been, you know, on a normal day between like 12, sometimes one in the morning on a busy, on a busy day. And then, and then we're getting up, you know, we're getting up at seven in the morning, six thirty in the morning and, uh, you know, cleaning cages. Yeah. And what kind of pay did you get? We got a hundred dollars a week. Sometimes. <laughs> I got there just as he was really starting to do lots of cub photos. You know, before that, I think he had done a lot more movies and television sort of thing. And uh, so sometimes, I mean, a few times he didn't have any money and that would be fine, you know. Uh, Well, I mean, we would be, you know, he would just pay us later or or we would just not get money for that week. Um, But then... Yeah, then it was more like, yeah, you just go up and ask him for your money. And then and then when we, I feel like around the time you got there, Julia, he was, he gave me like a credit card, and but it was his money. So he didn't pay me at all, but I had this credit card. So if I wanted to get something, I'd just ask him permission to buy something, basically. That felt very extravagant, but ultimately it was kind of infantilizing and still... I struggle, like, I, I don't buy things. Like, I'm I'm so scared to go buy, like, take my own initiative to go buy something. I still ask my husband's permission, and he's like, you don't have to ask me permission to use the money. Yeah, so that's how eventually it was. One of the saddest moments in the episode in which you featured, Barbara, was when you explained that you were taken to have implants and this was not a choice that you had made, but that you went along with it because it meant at least you'd get a little bit of rest from this unrelenting work. It wasn't specified in the programme, and tell me it's none of my business if you don't want to answer, but are we talking about breast implants here? Yeah, breast implants. How did that come about then? Well, I mean, it was suggested you know, I wanted to be in the shows and I wanted to be part of the whole thing. So at first he, you know, he gave the order to another woman who's no longer there. She's not there anymore, but, um, to ask me to dye my hair blonde, which I said, okay, because he liked it. He doesn't like in between colors. He likes dark or blonde, um, hair. And then she, she started, she brought up the subject of maybe you should get implants. And I kind of, brushed it off. I mean, I didn't really want to get implants, but she just kept bringing it up. And, and for my relationship with that woman at that time was, there was a very sharp power dynamic, you know, between us. She was kind of my direct boss and, and it wasn't like a boss's relationship. It would be like, you know, I remember one time she asked me to make a sandwich for her and just stand at the end of the driveway because she was going to come by. And I was standing there for at like an hour and a half holding a sandwich waiting for her to come by. So to say that I volunteered, I went along with what she said. She made the appointments. She filled out my loan paperwork, which I paid for them with this loan. And she was in the room with me every for every preliminary meeting as well. So I didn't feel like I had an opportunity to really ask the questions I might ask or say what I really thought because I was never alone with it. And then I just felt like, you know, I was going to be sleeping for days. And that sounded really great. And it kind of was great, even though I was in pain and throwing up from the anesthesia. It was like I, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. 
and I had to sleep in Bhagavan's bed, which I didn't mention. I slept in Bhagavan's bed with this woman and him so they could take care of me, which was kind of a relief after being in that terrible trailer for, for months. So, Did anything like that happen to you, Jules? No. I was always kind of like the... I didn't ever really conform to anything, but I have a really good personality. So I just, I got along with everybody, <laughs> especially with Barb, especially with his, his wives. I got along very well with them and I showed initiative, but by the time we were, me and me and Barb were just talking about this the other day, by the time I got there, which was four years after Barb had been there, things had changed. Things were shifting. So when I started, the reason why, one of the reasons why they hired me wasn't just because I was persistent, but because they were, they were transitioning from just being at the Myrtle Beach facility to now he just purchased a facility in Florida, in Kendall, Florida, Miami, Florida. And he was splitting up the staff. He was, he was taking people to Miami to start uh, working at this place called Jungle Island here in South Florida. Um, and it was this big, big project for him. So then I got there in this transitional time and I immediately, like I said, was, was starting with Barb and, and she was training me, but Rajni, his, one of his, his, his top dog, his main wife, she took me under her wing and really saw, I guess, herself in me. And she made it a point to kind of covet me as like her her person and I, you know, trained me to be her and, and to be like her and to train like her. And I was with her for the first, when did I go to Miami? The first like two and a half years I was, I was there almost three years. I was, I was under her wing. I didn't change my name and everyone around me did, but I, I don't know why I just, I, I liked my name and I, I'd never got, too into I got I got enough into everything but not fully fully there you know by the time I got there Doc already had his his set he had his 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 four women and then me and Barb were kind of treated like we got all the benefits of, of being there like his women but without any of that without any of the sexual part of it. You know what I mean? Like we were one of his kids and we were actually treated better than his children. You did change your name, did you, Barbara? Yeah, I changed it to Bala. Well, you know, Bhagavan is the one who came up with that name. When you talk about being looked after in his bed by him and his wife, one of his wives, talking about it now, Barbara, that you must acknowledge how odd, to say the least, that sounds. Yeah. I mean, it was a weird, I mean, I, I ended up leaving for about six months, um, within a few months of that. Uh, it was, I, I, yeah, that was really weird time. I remember being stuck up there and he, uh, he, like he said, you need to take a shower today after a day two or three. And he's like, and I have to watch you take a shower unless, or, you know, and just in case you pass out or something like that. And I just felt like, you know, can't one of the other people watch me? But I didn't say anything. 
I feel like when I got there, he was still in his, he was still like all bunch of the women around me ended up as his partners. I mean, we were used for our sex appeal for sure, but he didn't, we didn't sleep with him. We didn't sleep with him. He did dress us and put us on diets and, you know, make us, you know, look a certain way. But it wasn't for his benefit necessarily directly. It was for, well, secondary benefit of of the appearance that he wanted for his facility of having cute girls, you know. Right. That was like, and I think when you were there, it was maybe him trying to figure out if you were going to be a part of that or not. As you describe it is very similar to something which is now recognised in UK law, which is a coercive relationship. So that's a relationship where there isn't any physical force to keep you in the relationship. And I accept, obviously, that you didn't have a a sexual relationship with him. But there, there was some form of manipulation there over a period of time that made you both feel that you had to stay there and behave in a way that most people would not regard as as normal. I feel like, and tell me if this is your experience, Jules, when we had, I mean, because we did have problems or fights with, especially with people like Rajani or something like that, but he would use that aspect to get us to run to him and say, oh, help me from, you know, Rajani's torturing me or whatever. He would just, you would take your problems to him and he would talk to you for hours. You know, you just keep talking until you saw things his way. And basically we're saying, thank you so much for telling me how terrible I am and how to fix myself, you know. Thank you for patting me on the head and telling me I'm good and that everything will be okay. Yeah. So he had, you know, he had Rajni and and China and, and Moksha who, you know, were his, were his women and Kira too, but Kira was kind of estranged by the time I got there. But these women were essentially like our, our general managers. So they were in charge of everything that we had to do. So he would dictate to them how he wanted things and what we had to do in a day. And then they would trickle that down to us. And then depending on me and Barb's situation, we might have three or four other apprentices around us that we also have to give commands to or do stuff or, you know, train or work with. And it made it difficult at most of the time because you're dealing with these three women that are with this same man. So we're almost like there to keep them calm and talk to them about their problems and and woes and stresses of life of having three chicks with the same guy. So it distracts us a lot of times from our our job. I'm sure Barb can agree with me. A lot of the times we would kind of try to hide and do animal work, you know, feeding tiger cubs for like an extended period of time. So we wouldn't have to deal with the drama well, I and I feel like that was one of the things that that was by design. He played us all against each other, so we're constantly having these conflicts. Or he, he would accentuate certain conflicts, or he wouldn't let you resolve them. He liked to he liked to insinuate himself in all relationships. We always called him like the master puppeteer. 
we're all the puppets just kind of fiddling around going wherever he wants us to go and saying what we're what we're told to say and and for us who didn't have sexual relationships with him but we did have relationships there in the facility a lot of the times yeah you know and sometimes it felt like he was designing who was going to be with who you know absolutely we called it we called it the tiger's lack of options yeah, syndrome exactly <laughs> <laughs> he would like I mean, I think he hired a few male apprentices because they were my legal type, really, just to keep me yep. there. I mean, he, he, I, I fell for his nephew and he flew his nephew back out to come live and work on the facility to be with me. And he moved him to, to Florida to be with me. Barbara, looking back on it now, what do you think? of that setup that you were part of obviously the pay was lousy the conditions were poor but you were a volunteer you chose to go there you were working in a place that had some compatibility with your beliefs in life so it's not a black and white issue looking back on it what would you say now about that life that you lived well i think when we were there you know, people would say, he, this is crazy. You shouldn't be doing all this. And we'd say, but we're choosing to do this. But really, we were making that choice because it was the only choice that allowed us to benefit from all the work we had put into it. I mean, it's that, that sunk cost fallacy, right? We, When you worked that hard, even for a month, I mean, she's like, you don't want to throw that all in the garbage. So really, I think, you know, sure, we made the choice to not get up and, and leave. But also he shouldn't have been asking us or telling us that the only way we could be involved was if we gave up everything else. You know, that that's that should never be an option. You should not be able to ask people to do that, I don't think, at, at this point. I think it just sets it up that how can it not be culty and weird and manipulative, you know? How do you view it, Jules? Man, it was... <laughs> It was the best and worst experience of my life. I think that we got everything that we wanted from that place as far as kind of learning who we were and being taught extreme discipline and working so hands-on and so close with animals that people just do not get to be involved with. But then that negative part, and I agree completely with what Barb is saying, which is it doesn't have to be so so controlled there are ways to be able to work with those animals and and do that great work and put in that much effort without having it be so controlled and manipulated to to make you feel like you have to be there 24 7 or else you're not a good animal handler or you're not a good cub mom or you're not a good yogi like everything that we did, if we weren't a hundred percent dedicated to that task or to what he was saying or what Rajni was saying or, or whatever, you know, we were basically shunned like, Oh, well, if you're not going to be a hundred percent here and you want to go see your family, you know, then, then you, you don't want to feed tiger cubs anymore. You don't want to learn how to walk cats. You don't want to. So it was very manipulative. So they, you know, they kind of force you to believe that, the only way to work with animals in that close knit environment is to do it that way. 
Now, mind you, you have to understand too, this is in a time frame where like MySpace and Facebook and the gram didn't exist yet, you know? Maybe a little bit of MySpace, but you know, social media wasn't a thing. We were all just like kind of getting cell phones and stuff then. There wasn't selfies and all of this stuff around to have us have all of this crazy amount of information around us. We just did what we thought we were supposed to be doing because we wanted to be there so bad working with these animals. And like she said, you're putting in, you're working so hard. So to just be like, oh, screw it, I'm going to leave or no, this isn't worth it. Like that just, it, if you have that right personality, it's not in your brain. But for for a lot of people, for normal people, they would come in and leave within a couple of days. They were like, oh, screw this, I'm out of here. People would leave in the middle of the night. We had apprentices, we would take bets. Like, oh, this person's probably gonna, <laughs> they probably won't be here in the morning. Like most people. I went home for my grandfather's funeral and I met this guy named Asa, who is my husband now. Um, he, I'd known him in high, in high school. I'd known of him in high school. He never spoke to me because he was way cooler than me. Um, but I, so I met him and then we, we began a relationship in that week. And then he kept, I, you know, I kept in contact with him past that point. And I think just having somebody that I was talking to every day that was on the outside that could kind of think through things with me and give me that other, the outside perspective that I was missing. It's helped me to see, I, you know, I don't really want to stay here anymore. You know, at first I told Bhagavan, he's going to come and move in. He'll live with us and he'll be part of this too. And so Bhagavan did kind of let me go. He let me go one more time to Iowa to see him. And then he let, he even let him stay on the facility one time. And in during that time I got pregnant. So yeah, once he knew, once Bhagavan knew, he couldn't convince me to get an abortion. There was no point to me staying. I, you know, you can't have a baby on the facility, so. He, he tried to persuade you to have an abortion? He always, he was, yes, he, he did. He, yes, he did. He told me, he said, I mean, it was, it was in one of his, like, hour-long talks. I said, I'm pregnant. And he said, well, you better get an abortion because... This guy doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. He just met you. He doesn't want this. I don't care what he's saying. He doesn't want you to have this baby. He's going to leave you. I mean, it was just gaslighting, you know? Um, and that was really hard. But luckily, I'd built in enough trust in this, in Asa, to know that that wasn't the truth. Jules, let me ask you about the big cats because they were your passion, the reason that you got involved in this place in the first place do you think private zoos of the kind that doc antle runs joe exotic runs or ran do you think that those kind of zoos are appropriate homes for those beautiful big cats ideally no you know ideally we want everything to be free and live their normal life I think that a place like like Doc's place and other facilities, they can house animals to a certain degree where it's it they're taken care of. Those animals a lot of the times are taken better care of than the humans. I think what my issue is is that how do you continue to keep breeding these animals over and over and over again? 
And then where do they go? You know, there's, you're on a 30 acre facility. You can't have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals there. You, you know, there's, I feel like there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. But the industry, the business needs the young ones because they're the ones who are tame enough to give the photo opportunities. Right. So, so you've you always know. got to have that breeding to sustain the business model. When we got there, we're thinking, you know, this is for conservation and this is for, you know, education. And we're doing educational shows that we think, you know, because this is what we're being told about the conservation of this species. Otherwise, they won't exist anymore. You know, save the tiger, save the world. And you realize after being in a place like that for years and years that we're, we're breeding animals for profit. And then when they don't do the job anymore or they're not making enough money, that animal is disposed of, whether it's sold or traded or, or whatever. Looking at Joe's tigers on the documentary, they were, um, they were all Bhagavan's tigers. They were all Bhagavan's cats. I, I started laughing. That's clearly where he was dumping a lot of cats was there. And then, I mean, he would say beautiful facilities. These these cats go to beautiful facilities and live out their lives, you know, and we didn't see them again once they left generally. But now I looked up places like the, the, my cat, my favorite cat, Lakshman that I spoke about on the, on the show, he went to a guy called Lance Ramos, Lancelot Ramos. He's like a circus guy. And he's lost his license. He can't exhibit anymore for starving an elephant. Now, I can't imagine that Lakshman had a great life living with that guy. And Barbara, what did you think of the Tiger King documentary? Um, I thought it was a, I thought it was val a valuable doc documentary, and I'm, I'm glad everybody watched it. I know it's gotten a lot of pushback for not featuring the animals, but I think that that's really narrow-minded. Overall, I think, how can you look at those people and think that they should be breeding and controlling the lives of people and cats and other animals? I think it, it, it's, to me, I don't see how it's not a nail in the coffin for this private, private industry of breeding and making money off of big cats in, in the U.S. Well, that's what my hope is, that this is the end of it. Barbara Fisher, Jules, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Adrian Goldberg's Talk Show, please spread the word on social media and hit the subscribe button. You can follow me on Twitter, at Goldberg Radio, on Instagram, Adrian D. Goldberg. And if you want to contact me, if you want to get in touch and maybe suggest some future guests for us to talk to, you can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Jules. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us.